Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Tom Rhodes has been obsessed with stand-up comedy since he was 12. As a teenager in Florida in the 1980s, he performed with fake IDs to get into the comedy clubs and won a contest that allowed him to perform at 19 at the Comedy Store in Hollywood. After stops in New York City and San Francisco, Rhodes became the first comedian signed to a deal with Comedy Central and started his own NBC sitcom, Mr. Rhodes, in the mid-90s. A decade later, he was hosting his own late-night talk show in Amsterdam. Three CDs, two half-hour specials, self-produced DVDs, and many travels later, Rhodes and his wife are still globetrotting, but he stopped long enough to catch me up on where he's been and what's next. So let's get to it! Most common question is, will you do my podcast? <laughs> right. Like, everybody's going. You know? Well, thank you for doing my podcast. Oh, my Mr. absolute Tom pleasure, Rhodes. yeah. And, um... Well, let me ask you last things first, then, since we are in the in the nice, comfortable late afternoon. When is the last time you uh, worked like regular business hours? Um, You're still like on an artist's lifestyle. I started being a stand-up comedian when I was 17, so I've never had regular business hours. The only time I've ever had like kind of a job was when mm. I had a television show. So. Um, 96 to 97 I did the Mr. Rhodes sitcom on right. NBC and you know you're you go to the studio all day uh we went to Universal Studios and Universal uh, uh you know you rehearse mm -hmm. so that's not really like a job right but you had to keep and, regular hours though yeah I guess kind of yeah you couldn't stay out well until you're there for even the longer than eight hours you're you're there like all day right you get there at 10 in the morning and then sometimes leave at like 8 p.m what kind of hours did you keep for the Amsterdam? And talk then the show? Late, yeah, and then the late night talk show in Amsterdam. What were those hours like? That that actually was pretty cool because um, the all the studios in the entertainment world mm -hmm. in in Holland is based in a town called Hilversum, which is and they call it Hillywood, <laughs> and it's uh, it's okay. actually like a very wealthy area mm -hmm. of the Netherlands and. Uh, it's about a half hour, 20 minute train ride from Amsterdam. Okay. I think it's like a half hour. So what I would do when I had, so we filmed the show uh, once every two weeks in Amsterdam. Okay. And so during the week, uh, only I would, I would do one week on, one week off. So mm -hmm. like every other weekend I was going to London and performing and around Europe and stuff. But uh, it was kind of cool. So... Uh, I would ride my bicycle to Central Station in Amsterdam, and I would take the train a half hour to Hilversum to go work on the late night talk show. And, you know, you're working on monologue jokes, and then the, the producers and the staff have skit ideas. And, and then they were, they were teaching me all about Holland, and they were teaching me about each guest, you know, their, um, uh, you know, their history and, like, kind of coming up with questions for these people. Um, but... Uh, that was like the first time ever where I had like kind of a commute thing, mm -hmm. uh, like kind of a 1940s, 1950s, you know, guy coming in from Connecticut to work in the city type right. thing, uh, because you could still smoke on the trains. <laughs> 
And the woman who ran the network, the woman who put me on Dutch television, uh, the, when she, she gave me this lovely um, television show to, to host, and then she paid for, in, in my contract, was that I could take the train first class. Oh. So they have the little first class car. And so, right. like, you know, a lot of Dutch people are, are uh, frugal. And um, <laughs> right, right, riding bicycles around and, Amsterdam. Right, and so uh, there would only be like you know me and one other person in the <laughs> in the smoking first class section. A lot of times it was just me, right. but it was really cool. So I'd ride my bicycle to Central Station. I'd buy a cup of coffee, and I still smoked cigarettes then. So and I'd buy <laughs> I'd buy uh, a couple newspapers because I wanted to you know come up with monologue mm-hmm. jokes. And uh, it was pretty cool sitting in the first class section smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Reading the newspaper, it really. Are you wearing it? Were you wearing a suit? No, 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 not no. during the week. To, to <laughs> not, not to on the train. Rehearse. No. <laughs> so uh, and then I would spend full days down there. Okay. At the thing, but that was. Is that the closest you've had to having like a job? Job. Yeah. 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 I've, I've got hands as soft as a baby's bottom. <laughs> uh, I've I've never done a hard day work in my whole life. Wow. How do you yeah. pull, how do you pull that <laughs> off? That's not really true. Because being a comedian, you got to hump it. Right. You know? sometimes but a lot of times you have to also hump it with day jobs and yeah i never had to do that right so how do do you pull that off oh child prodigy i mean i know your official bio says that you you learned about comedy at the age of 12 yeah yeah through your Uh, uncle bob yeah actually uh it was well i don't remember uncle bob a lot of his credits yeah. <laughs> Uncle Bob only did one year of open mic nights in Washington, D.C. My, okay. f- my family's originally from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I was born in Washington, D.C. Um, everyone in my family, deep Washingtonians. And uh, it, comedy really, um, my dad is the reason I'm a comedian. My dad loved stand-up comedy. Richard Pryor was his favorite and I remember driving around with my dad as a little kid and him listening to Richard Pryor, like, eight-track tapes. And my dad had all of Pryor's vinyl records. Uh, so I remember, like, you know, lying on the living room floor listening to, to Pryor. And my dad also loved uh, Bob Newhart. So those were his two favorites, Pryor and Newhart. But he never tried comedy himself. No, 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 no. But, like, stand-up comedy was right. a very respected thing in my family. And, and his my- brother did it. And his brother did it, and but uh, you know my dad's cousin, you know just our family in D.C. They had a, a real reverence. I remember my dad and my uncle went to see Pryor mm-hmm. uh, in D.C. once uh, at a place called the Back Door, uh, which is where they did like stand up and okay. shows and things. Right, because the improv hadn't moved in yet. There was nothing. This right. is uh, nineteen seventy. So, I mean, that was probably like seventy seven. So my uncle did open mic nights in 1978. I was actually 11 years old. Okay. So I actually uh, have told that story so many times, uh, and it's on my bio right. that I was 12. Right, right. So you're right. actually I'm going from the official you bio. You are correct on the official bio, but I've since realized, and I'm you were actually 11. Uh, I was actually 11 hmm. when uh, my dad took me to see my uncle do open mic nights. Yeah. The only place in Washington, D.C. that did stand-up comedy was called L. Brookman's. L. Brookman's. And uh, Louis Black later, several years later, in the early 80s, started there. Uh, and I know Rich Scheidner. Rich Scheidner was, right. was, was, the, was the, apparently there 
uh, the night this happened. Oh. Because okay. he, he, I know we're friends now, and he said, I'll never, there was a kid sitting at the bar <laughs> sipping Cokes. I was like, wow, who let a kid in here? So <laughs> we walked in, the this, this show was in progress, mm-hmm. and the entrance is next to the stage, and I'm wearing a Washington Redskins jacket. I'm 11 years old, and the comedian on stage pulled me on stage, and he interviewed me like I was the coach of the Redskins. And, I, you know, I was bashful and gave one word, dopey little kid answers. Yes. No. But I'll never forget standing on that stage, seeing all those happy people with their heads thrown back in laughter and all the teeth in their mouth. And that moment changed my life. And I never wanted to do anything else. Did you feel like moving to Florida was then punishment? Well, I knew, st- I knew comedy wasn't... Uh, you know, I knew it was like the. Uh, Were you mad at your parents for no, I know, for taking no, you out of DC and going to Florida? No, it was a great place to grow up. You know, it was hot, and uh, there was orange groves all around where I lived, mm-hmm. so we could run around barefoot. And Disney World was still new. Disney World, you know, your little kid, the chance of getting to go to Disney World. Yeah. Which uh, you know, uh, my brother and my sister both worked there, so we could get in free. Oh, nice. And. Um, I knew it was a remote French Foreign Legion outpost uh, in regard to show business. Right. But I became a student of stand-up comedy. I just, you know, I devoured those records my dad had. I was a little kid. I didn't understand the prior adult-themed topics, but he would animate animals. Right. You know, like the dog, when the girl breaks up with him, the dog coming over, hey, Rich, it's been cool, you know. You're a little tardy with the food, N-word, you know. Uh, left a little shit over here for you to remember me by. And then he goes to Africa and the cheetah, yeah. you know. Uh, that stuff just, just blew my mind. How right, You didn't need to know about freebasing. Right, 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 right. Or shooting up the car because he, you know, he was coked yeah. up and angry at his uh, <laughs> wife. Um, and then Bob Newhart, you know. So it's interesting. I think that's, um, I think you can, uh, I don't know. Those were like huge early influences on me. And then, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live, the original cast was was massive, and, and I would stay up on Saturdays, watch, you know, SNL, anything to do with comedy, you know, uh, Charlie Chaplin movies, um, The I would get the TV guide, and I would circle when they had comedians on the, the talk shows, like, in the afternoon show, there was, like, Mike Douglas, and then Johnny Carson, and so, like, when Carson had a comedian on, I would be sitting in front of the television and just, you know, studying everything about them, you know, the jokes, the way they dressed, the way they moved, you know. At what age did you realize that there were comedy clubs outside of D.C., that there might be, that there might be comedy clubs in Florida? Uh, well, you know, I was in, so I was in high school, and I really started when I was 16. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in a little town outside of Orlando called Oviedo. And now Orlando has expanded and there's a circular highway. And now my charming little citrus village is a highway exit with a Chili's and a Target and all that other glut of suburban American bullshit. But when I grew up there, there was one stoplight and a tractor crossing and there was orange groves everywhere. And it was a really small town and it was a small high school. Everybody knew I wanted to be a comedian. So... Uh, I got to do the morning and afternoon announcements. I got to host the pep rallies. I got to host the uh, the talent shows. So I really kind of started to get my stage presence, stage time. You were making it where you could. 
Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I had a brilliant teacher, uh, Mr. Martin, um, gay black gentleman who uh, my favorite, I, I adore this guy. I contacted him last Christmas. to. I called him and told him how much he meant to me. Uh, he was still alive. Still alive. Yeah, he's retired now. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, good. I didn't know. I wonder if I had an effect on anyone's life. I, I can't tell you how much he affected mine. Because it, it he, he taught speech and drama class. Okay. And so there was a little stage in the class. And he said, listen, I know I've heard you, you know, other teachers talk about you and you can be disruptive and you can speak out. I'm going to make a deal with you. I will give you the first five minutes of every class to do stand-up. Do whatever you want, you know, you can't be dirty and cuss and everything, but, you know, get your jokes out of your system, and then, you know, uh, you give my class back to me. And if you screw this up, you, you know, you'll never get this back. And uh, and, and it was great. I would, I would do these little, you know, five-minute monologue, and then I, I adored this guy. I would, I would be mannerly and quiet during his class. And, uh, and then also speech class, he taught me how to structure a story. And that a, a, an argument or a story should lead to an end place. And there's a lot of young L.A. alternative comedians that I've seen that um, could have benefited from <laughs> Mr. Martin's class. Where is this going? <laughs> what is the point? Yes, this, this? Uh, verbal meandering. <laughs> non sequiturs. So then, uh, you know, but, I but started when you... I was 17. There was a, so, you're, so you're asking about the clubs. Right, and because... then, so I found out about this club in Orlando. Yeah, how do you find out that there's a club in Orlando? Well, I'm in a small town, you know? I mean, well, Orlando... There's no internet, so there's... Yeah. So how do you... I don't... How does it get in your brain that, oh, there's a place I can go that's not a school that... Somebody told me there might have been something in the newspaper. Yeah. And uh, it was called The Funny Farm when I started there, and my dad drove me to my first open mic night, because I didn't have a driver's license. Um, Oh, no, I did. Oh, no, I didn't have a car. And... um, did so he go I, inside and watch, too, or did he just stay in the parking lot? Uh, the first time, I asked him to stay in the car because I was nervous. Okay. And then the next week, he came back with me, and then I let him come inside. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's how cool my dad was. He just And then it was, cool that, it was actually cool that he wasn't there because mm-hmm. then on the drive home, I got to tell him all about it and tell him, like, you know, what worked, what didn't work, you know. Oh, man, I was so nervous and, and all that stuff. And then so my dad went back with me. And, uh, you know, my dad, one of my greatest supporters, he's dead now, but, um... How old were you when he died? Uh, he died, uh, 2009. He was okay. killed by a drunk driver. Oh, wow. Yeah, rich guy. Got away with it. But, um, yeah, and then, like, and my dad lived in Anaheim for years. Mm-hmm. My parents were divorced. He sat in the front row of every taping of my sitcom. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, and I, my dad flew over to Amsterdam when I had the late night talk show. I put him on an episode. It's really funny. That was yeah. We went. They had this comment instead of like watching you in Little League. He got to watch you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make TV. Yeah, and, and he was there for Little League. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I got my dad high once in Amsterdam. I thought, oh, this would be really great to take you know puffalo mm-hmm. weed with my dad. Oh my god, he wouldn't shut up. <laughs> Oh, my God. You know, when you played Little League, it was so great because you were pretty good at it. You get a hit once in a while. You know, your other brothers, they weren't that good at it. That was really cool. So, Did you guys go to a lot of spring training games then? Oh, my God. Do you know this story? Are you just no. bringing, are you setting me up for... I'm just thinking of Florida in the 1980s. Okay, <laughs> great. Cause so, so baseball and comedy were the things that I um, really bonded with my dad over. And 
we had all the spring training games in yeah in, the Grapefruit in, League yeah in in Florida. So my dad did the coolest thing for me. Mm-hmm. He would get me out of school to take me to spring training games. That's a good dad. See, my two older brothers uh, weren't as close with my dad. They had you know some issues with him. My mm-hmm. dad, you know, he uh, alcoholic womanizer. Cheated on my mom a lot, type thing, uh, and I always thought instead of passing judgment on my dad, it would be much funner to drink with him and hang out. <laughs> so, uh, but before the drinking and hanging right. out, when I was young, my dad uh, he'd take me out of school. There'd be a, a note would come to the class saying Tom had a dentist appointment or a doctor's appointment, and I'm walking to the <laughs> and office. it was always in March. You always <laughs> yeah right yeah I'm walking to the office and I'm thinking to myself I don't have a dentist appointment. <laughs> And then I'd get to the office, and my dad would be sitting there with a shit-eating grin on his face, and he'd get me out of school, uh-huh. and we would go see baseball games. And it was phenomenal. It was great. It was playing hooky with my yeah. dad. And, you know, and he, um, my dad was an insurance salesman, so he, you know, he could work, you know, he could, he could take the day off whenever he wanted. Right. Um, but my dad got, one time he got me out of school to go see, in Cocoa Beach, uh, was when the, was where the Houston Astros played, and they they played at this terrible little tiny like high school baseball stadium facility. Mm-hmm. But my dad got me out of school to go see the Tokyo Giants were oh, playing wow. the the Yamamura mm-hmm. Giants, which are like the Yankees of the what Japanese league. So he got me. He played for them, but. My dad got me out of school to go see the Tokyo Giants because at that time, Sadahara O was the manager. Oh. And Sadahara O was the Babe Ruth right. of the Japanese league. Yeah, so he was the all-time home run. We, my dad, we got to go look at this great man. Mm-hmm. So we only went there just to look at this guy because he was the <laughs> Babe Ruth of Japanese. He wasn't even playing anymore. But it was, and it was great. So we get there and this little crappy facility... And, you know, Florida was pretty redneck back then. I mean, it's still kind of rednecky, yeah. but, you know, in the 80s, this was like, uh, there was some real hayseeds there. <laughs> and the Cocoa Beach facility had the American flag pole mm-hmm. uh, in center field, behind center field. So we get there, and all these redneck cops and security people, they play the national anthem, and every one of them turned towards center field and put their ha- hands in their hats over their heart. And my dad nudges me, and I swear to God, we like tiptoe sidestepped into the stadium for free and snuck in behind them. Their patriotism allowed us to get away with this criminal act. It was beautiful. Really beautiful. Ah. <sighs> Such a touching story. It is. So I, I told my wife, if I ever have a kid, I'm going to get him out of school to go to baseball games and things. That'd be good of you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Florida, also in the 1980s, the more I talk to comedians, the more I find out and realize how many comedians came out of that scene. Well, it's funny because in the 80s, Florida had a you know reputation of like there was a lot of shitty. I mean, in the 80s in general, you yeah. know, that's why I love comedy now. It is so much better because there's more ethnicity. There's, you know, there, there's, there's great female comedians. There's great gay comedians. There's just every flavor of, um, of the palette. And back then, every white guy wanted to be Jerry Seinfeld. The, 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 you know, the sport coat rolled up to the elbows, and there was a lot of bolo ties. Yeah. I saw some guy last night at the friggin' um, at the olive tree above 
the comedy cellar, mm-hmm. some young guy, and he was wearing a bolo. I'm like, dude, those aren't coming back. <laughs> I don't care. No matter how hard you try. That was like, <laughs> those were cool for like eight minutes in the 80s. So, but, so, so Florida, there, and I mean, it's just, I think in the United States in general, mm-hmm. there was this really hacky, bland, white guy shit going on uh, in comedy. But you think of the, 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 the comedy scene, the, the people that came out of Florida, uh, you know, Brian Regan, I started out doing shitty one-nighters with him in Florida. Uh, one of my, I, I've actually known Brian longer than anyone. Uh, and we're still friends to this day. And, and Brian was a huge uh, influence on me. You know, not that, you know, he's totally clean, right. but Brian taught me the greatest thing every comedian should know. Tell him the joke. Show him the joke. If you act something out, even just a little bit, or even just with your face, it's a thousand times funnier if you act it out. Right. So, uh, so Brian Regan uh, in, in Orlando, Billy Gardell, um, oh my God, why am I blanking on um, the, the impressionist guy from Saturday Night Live? Um, why am I blanking on this fucking Rich Hall? No, 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 no. Uh, Daryl Hammond. Oh, Daryl Hammond. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I remember Carrot Top was from Cocoa right. Beach. Carrot I remember Top, everyone Ron, hated him because Ron White he, was from down there. No, Ron White was from Texas. Oh. But I, but but Carrot Top, I, I always thought people were right. unfairly mean to him because he had props. But he was a sweetheart of a guy, and he loved comedy just as much as everybody else. Right. I always thought that was really unfair. Dan Whitney, who was Larry the Cable Guy, was from West Palm Beach. Uh, Jim Brewer. Um, you know, even though he's Mr. Jersey guy, yeah. uh, um, you know, he, he was in town. I don't know if he started there, uh, at first, but he, he ba- basically started in Tampa. Um, and Ron Bennington had this club in Clearwater. So like everybody, you know, Bennington was the first guy I ever saw that was talking about things that mattered on stage. It wasn't just airline shit right. and men and women. It like, there was this, this, this oil tanker ran into the 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 bay, bay bridge in in tampa oh it was like it was some you know, hey you ought to rename that bridge kind of like the dickweed bridge named after the guy that that hit the ran the fucking boat into it i forget <laughs> what anyway but he like he he was doing like topical hardcore shit and um that's a bad example but uh <laughs> uh and then you know like then sam kinnison came out like a year or two later but like so, Bennington really encouraged his guys, and he was uh, he was like a he was like a tough you know baseball manager, mm-hmm. just staying on guys and you know how to swing the bat and how to. Um, well, because he was like a, a player manager. Yeah, I mean, and he was as a, as a comedian. He, slash and owner. He, he was a real fire breathing dragon mm-hmm. on stage, man. You know, he prowled the stage. I just, I, I, I you know, I, I like the way he held the microphone and just that kind of Philly badass attitude. Um, so, I mean, you know, I was very fortunate to, to fall under his wing very young and see, you know, oh, you don't have to be like these guys that just want to work the road and stuff. You can, how, how would you compare that, that scene growing up to then when you went to San Francisco? Well, uh, you know, so I started out in Florida and then I started, uh, I know you of- came here in between those two things. Well, but- I moved to New York when I was 20 Yeah, and I wasn't ready yet. And I could only afford to live in Washington Heights. Uh, and this was 1987 as that's, crack was coming to the That's probably neighborhood. when Lin-Manuel Miranda was living in the Heights. Probably. Probably. Yeah. It was rough then, man. You know, you could hear gunshots at night. 
Uh, I was like, where did I live? It was like 181st, 187th. I forget what the fucking subway stop was. But it was um, uh, Cabrini Avenue Mm -hmm. up there. And you could hear gunshots at night. And then uh, in the morning, there'd be burned out smoldering cars. People would steal cars in lower Manhattan and drive them up there and just set them on fire. So it was like a fucking war zone. There'd be like a, a, a car on fire or, or burnt out. The, the, the Did you watch any of uh, The Get Down on Netflix? I watched like the first three episodes. Did that bring you back? Wasn't like that. It wasn't because that was like there's bricks everywhere. Right, it looked the, like... the Bronx is burning more. Yeah, kind of. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the buildings were still intact. <laughs> but you could, you could hear car sh- you know, gunshots mm-hmm. and stuff. And, you know, I wasn't... Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't good enough as a comedian yet. I was just a you know young kid. I you know wanted to chase my dream, but I remember I got on it, Catch a Rising Star, a few times um, with the help of Richard Belzer, um, the Bells, the Bells, because I had opened for him at the Atlanta Punchline. Um, was your hair long or short then? No, I was. It was short. I was still. Still kind of, uh, you know, Oviedo High School short-haired baseball player. So the long hair was just a, no, a, so, a meteoric phase no, captured for television? Uh, no, Posterity. no, 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 no. It was sincere. <laughs> uh, no, because I moved back to Florida mm-hmm. for one year. Okay. And that's when, and I, and I saw, and then especially in New York, everybody wanted to be Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. and Because right. uh, he, he, he was running around the comic strip and... Well, I mean, and he was doing all the late night talk shows. Yeah. He was definitely a lot of people's favorites. He was um, he influenced a lot of people back then, and I didn't want to go that route. I didn't want a sitcom, and that so I moved back to Florida for a year, and I licked my wounds, and you know, uh, really kind of started smoking pot and water skiing, and um, you know, really into Native Americans, Crazy Horse. Sitting Bull, Geronimo, and uh, uh, and the Doors, and Zeppelin, and uh, was that? I was friends with a lot of guys that were in local bands mm-hmm. in in Orlando. So I started to grow my hair out, and uh, partly because I didn't want to be the clean cut guy trying to get a sitcom. And I've mm-hmm. never, you know, thought I always wanted to do what I felt like talking about. I didn't like oh, all these guys doing these like clean sets. Um. Right. In hopes of getting a sitcom. So, and then I always thought a higher intelligence of comedy came out of San Francisco. I thought San Francisco was like a really cool place. And it was my, my dream to move there. So I moved there at 22. And uh, that's really where I started to get good as a comedian. And the, the audiences there are really intelligent. It was such a great scene. I moved there, whatever, whatever 90, 91, something like that. And um, the uh, Greg Proops, Margaret Cho, Mark Marin, Patton Oswalt, Dana Gould. It was like such an amazing scene. And everybody there, we were all young comedians. And so, like, you know, everyone's trying to impress each other with, like, the best written material. And uh, there, were, there was, like, five clubs in San Francisco at that time. And then that's where I got started to, you know... Uh, get my attitude on stage, my confidence. When a comedian gets confident on stage, when you finally get past that barrier of being afraid on stage and can handle chaos and any kind of heckle, 
something really magical happens, you know, when you're not afraid anymore when you go on stage. <laughs> so that's where I, I got good as a comedian. Do you remember that moment when it happened? Mm, yeah, I... Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, well, I think it was in the southern, on the, on the tough southern circuits, you know, because I, I grew my hair long, mm -hmm. and in, you know, like the late 80s, like 89, friggin' whatever, 88, 89, there was a comedy club in every holiday and lounge in the southern United States. It was this booked out of Charlotte called the Comedy Zones. Okay. And uh, these were, and so you do like, they had all these different weeks of one-nighters. So I played in every town that ends in Ville or Borough in the southern United States. Every like holiday and lounge had a friggin' And they weren't that receptive club. to a long-haired... I had, so I had long, long hair. Long-haired smoker. And I'm, you know, skinny, sexy, friggin' jeans, tight t-shirt, <laughs> cowboy boots, and... Uh, I was called a faggot no less than nine million times by, you know, hayseeds with uh, paint spackle on yeah. their work boots. So, you know, you start dealing with that and then learn how to um, not capitulate. Right, not sink to their level. No, I mean, sometimes you get, you know what, it is good too, because you go to London and in England they love to heckle. So... And it's not because they don't like you. It's they want to test your metal. They want to see what you're made of, you know. And so, you know, a lot of uh, foreign acts go there and they're startled when somebody yells some very specific shit at you. You know, you get to, you, you'll get historical heckles in, mm -hmm. in England, you know. You started Vietnam. You know, fuck you in the Panama Canal Treaty of 1874. Like, what? <laughs> You know, so uh, you stand there and deal with it like a man, mm -hmm. just, you know, not show fear on your face. The, the crowd is like the being in front of a lion or a wolf. Well, that kind of leads me to, to Mitch. When was the first time you, you met Mitch? Because <clears throat> Mitch's response to the crowd was just to almost not recognize them. Yeah. Um, I met Mitch in Seattle at the Comedy Underground. And... Uh, he was with this, his, his, this wonderful girl, uh, um, it was his girlfriend at the time, uh, Jenna, Jana, I think it was Jana, um, one or the other, uh, wonderful girl. And they had moved out from Minneapolis and, you know, he was really shy. He was a young comedian. I was headlining at the comedy underground and his underneath Swannies. Yeah. The you remember that? Bar. Yeah. That was yeah. such a great club. Uh, and she comes up to me after the show and she said, my boyfriend is a huge fan of yours and he's too nervous to, um, to talk to you. Can oh, wow. you, can you please, um, you know, come over and say hi to him and say, Hey, you know, that's when I met him and, you know, and he's really bashful and looking down and, um, but you know, he, uh, I, I could tell he got a big kick out of, you know, meeting me and then, um, they moved to San Francisco. Actually, he moved to Pacifica, which is like, man, I don't know why they moved to Pacifica. It's not even in the city. It's like an hour, 45-minute drive with no traffic yeah. from San Francisco. So then he starts, like, kind of hanging around the San Francisco scene. And, you know, I was, I, I, I was, you know, I was playing all the clubs, hardcore. San Francisco really adored me and loved me up. And uh, and I remember seeing Mitch in San Francisco, man, and, and, and feeling bad for him because 
he hadn't gelled yet. He still had these great non sequitur one liners and stuff, but uh, his awkwardness made the crowd uncomfortable sometimes. And uh, it, you know, there came a moment for him later. I don't know when it was, but then you know, I yeah, and I was I got I got friendly with him then, and then however however many years later. I saw him again, and then like boom, he's something magic right. happened. Some alchemist transformation, where his awkwardness and his non sequitur one liners now it's everything's fucking landing. Well, I, I was going back and listening to your older albums from like two thousand five, oh, right. uh, the, the one that was recorded in Houston. Um, oh, that hot, was recorded hot in two thousand. Hot sweet ass. That's from two thousand. Yeah. yeah, and. <clears throat> and what struck me going back to listen to it was how much your cadence remind me of Mitch. But now listening to you talk, it sounds more like he might have gotten his cadence from you. Well, I, I, or, or how much of it is just like hanging out together? You start talking the same. Uh, I mean, I always... Kind of uh, you know, my big thing, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived next door to... I lived on... When I first lived there, I lived at... 1096 Fulton Street, mm-hmm. and right behind my building was the Third Baptist Black Church. Um, the 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 wall, my windows were next to the wall of the church, so I could hear the choir on Sundays like cartoon pie smoke wafting into my apartment. So, uh, and my my family are all hardcore Christians and stuff. I have. Um, Whatever I uh, I started going over to this church, mm-hmm. and the preacher there was amazing, and I got a big influence from this Amos Brown, this black preacher of the uh, that black preacher style of like hitting the consonants and drawing out the syllables and <laughs> uh, the, the kind of command. So, right. um, you know that I don't know. I mean, I loved Hedberg. Uh, and he was one of my best friends. Uh, I adore the guy. People have asked me that before. I wouldn't be as presumptuous to um, comment on. I, I don't know. Right. I don't know. I wouldn't. You know. But I, you got yours from that. <clears throat> that's why. That's what he, the the Amos Brown was a yeah. big influence on me. You know. And when I met Hedberg, he really looked up to me. And. Uh, but you know, we hung out. I I've always been into the. I like the the, the jazzy black man speak. You know, right? Um, and you know, you said you weren't looking for a sitcom deal. So when everything started to happen <clears throat> for you in the '90s, for, whether it was the Comedy Central deal or the NBC show, which I presume came out of Montreal. Were you one of those Montreal deals? Uh, I was one of those Montreal deals. Um, <clears throat> but um, I that, was kind of the... I was, when Comedy Central first came on the air, um, I did... I was kind of the face of the network for a couple years. I did these image spots that were shot here in New York City, and they these little 30 seconds... They filmed my jokes like they were rock videos. Right. And... The first one was a, a shot in, uh, not far from here, the catacombs, the jail. Hmm. They were filmed in a jail cell. Okay. And it was like Comedy Central, where hot new comedians do time. <laughs> that was the thing. And so they filmed six of my jokes in these jail cells, uh, like rock videos. Mm-hmm. And then they were so popular, they did another set of six, and they shot them down on the docks here in New York. 
And then uh, they gave me a development deal. So I got to be like the face of the network. I got to do, uh, I got to cover the Super Bowl. I went on the Horde tour with like the Black Crows and Sheryl Crow to cover this summer music festival. I covered the Dream Team in Chicago when they were getting ready for the Olympics. They sent me to do all these cool things. And then that led to me doing Viva Vietnam. Vietnam had first opened up for Americans to travel there the way Cuba just opened up for right. us. Um, and your dad was a vet. My dad flew helicopters in Vietnam. He was shot down. Everyone died except for him and his co-pilot. Uh, my dad survived, obviously. And uh, Vietnam was a big topic in our family. So kind of in honor of my dad and the, the guys who fought there and didn't get to have a good time, I wanted to go to Vietnam and have a good time. And uh, it was funny. I brought Rock'em Sock'em Robots. <laughs> And I fought everybody wherever we went, um, kind of the rematch. Yeah. And uh, set up a slip and slide in uh, China Beach, the world's most dangerous place to set up a slip and slide. It kind of makes me think like it's a much different tack from like if you're the face of Comedy Central in the early 90s, it's a much different philosophical philosophical take or a strategy than, say, Polly Shore's the face of MTV at the same time. He's a, he's a yeah. spring break. Going, <clears throat> yeah. Hey, I'm the, like yeah. with the bikinis and you're actually doing – Going to Vietnam and well, yeah. I mean, going, I've always tried to. I've always tried to have some intelligence in what I do, right? And uh, comedy means more to me than anything. And I always wanted to be, you know, produce great jokes and content. Did you feel like at that at that time, leading up to the NBC show, that you were you were actually living the dream at that point? Absolutely, yeah, man. And then, you know, I'm living in San Francisco, and then so I really had a really nice. Um, following, you know, like lesbians, uh, punk rockers, you know, the, the, the outliers, the, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I really had a really, you know, just, you know, tattooed weirdos and, uh, I, it was, it was cool. You know, it was, it was the people I wanted to be reaching and, uh, I don't know. I, um, it was great. Yeah, I felt like I, I was uh, I was doing something right. So and then Viva Vietnam. So that that it was a you know it, it was highly marketable. Highly, it, it kind of put me on the map for American television because it got really nice reviews. And then um, that came on in April '95. We filmed it in September '94. It went on. April 95 to coincide with the, the 20th, 20th anniversary, anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. Okay. So then in July of 95, I did the Montreal Comedy Festival. Right, just for laughs. J- JFL. And I was the belle of the ball that year. And then there was, uh, there was actually a bidding war between Fox, NBC, and HBO. Uh, HBO was just offering a special. Fox offered more money, but uh, I thought it was a no-brainer to go with NBC because... In my mind, they were the home of American comedy. Right. Johnny Carson, Saturday Night Live, everything I grew up with. Right. Taxi, all the, 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 the sitcoms that I, I liked. Yeah. You know, I've never been a big sitcom fan. Um, but, you know, but the, the ones that I thought were the best were on NBC. So, um, so that's how I got the, the deal. When that, when that didn't become a smashing success... Was that something that that hit you, or was that more of a relief that it that you weren't? Uh, no, it hit me pretty hard. <clears throat> I I have written a book, 
and uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm going through it now. I've I wrote the first draft. I'm going through it now and cutting the the fat off the pork chop. So um, it, it's good that I've. I've examined the the thing fully. Uh, you know, I, I should have. I wanted to be a public defender lawyer, and on the on the show, and I should have stuck with my guns. And uh, at some point, somebody said, "Let's make Tom a teacher." And I thought, "Okay, this is a take it or leave it deal." I should have left it. We have the show, and then it kind of ends up being like a kid show. Um, you know, the kids got all the jokes. Everyone's making these stupid hair jokes at me. Hey, Cream Rinse. Hey, Kenny G. Hey, Fabio. And it was just, and then the script would say, Tom reacts. <laughs> I would go tell the executive producer, you know, look, anybody I ever considered a hero uh, is not put down. Right. And, you know, as a comedian, you are the topper. And it said uh, you were the butt of the joke. And so I'm the butt of the joke. And then it would say, Tom reacts. I would say to the guy, how many times can I just shrug when somebody <laughs> says something mean to me? You know, I should be crushing these people like a bug. Oh, well, our test market show that the audience doesn't like when you... Yeah, okay, <laughs> fuck off. <clears throat> so when that... So I lived in New York City like a dog when I was 20. Yeah. And I always swore if I ever had any money, I would live in New York with style. Um, when that sitcom ended, I... Uh, you know, the hot actress I was dating. All of a sudden, I wasn't as cute anymore. A lot of people in Los Angeles I thought were my friends stopped taking my call. Uh, showbiz kind of went ice cold on me. So I had a truckload of money, and I moved back to New York City, and I got a rock star apartment in the Wall Street area. Oh. And Hedberg was living at the Chelsea Hotel at the time. And then, so he and I, um, you know, it was, man, uh, I had a lot of money. Hedberg's, you know, uh, this is around the time he got a, he got a, he got a hunk of cash at one point. Yeah, because his... So we're both like balls out. Because his deal <clears throat> came in like 97 or 98. He did, okay. Because he won uh, the, yeah. Se- he did the Seattle competition in 97, so. So, and then, and then he got okay, so, so, I, and so the next time I did Montreal was 98. He, and then that's that, when Hedberg did yeah. it, because he and I flew up together from New York to Montreal, and he had cocaine. And then he was he the hands bell of the ball. Me, he, and then he, so Hedberg was the bell of the ball that year. Yeah. And then he got a big pile of cash. <laughs> so the so, two of you were sitting around with piles of cash. Pile of cash. And piles of drugs. <clears throat> yeah. And so... Uh, what could go wrong? Yeah. So we, we, we did uh, tons of cocaine together. He was at my place all the time. Uh, you know, I got thousands of CDs and then we go to his, at the Chelsea, he had his guitars in his little room. And so, you know, we'd be do, doing sets all night. We'd meet up back at the comedy cellar at the end of the night and we would either go back to the Chelsea hotel or back to my place. And then it was a short walk, uh, from wall street to the Chelsea. So wherever, whoever at the end of the night, you know, the morning rather, I remember walking back to wall street and all these workers, and I'm like a vampire trying to get in my apartment, you know, before the sun comes up. Did you start? I know you then you became more of a global person, going to Amsterdam and, and traveling around the world. Was that did that start before or after nine eleven? Uh, no, that was before. So this was the same period. The okay. one thing. So I'm living in New York City. Mm-hmm. I have this rock star apartment in the Wall Street area. I had four marble balconies. I was like just three blocks from the World Trade Center. It was great. Greatest date in the world. Take a girl up to the top of the World Trade Center, very expensive restaurant, 
And then a short three-block stroll later, we were on my balconies at 71 Broadway. My apartment was 18B. And uh, we're on my balconies, my marble balconies, looking up at the greatest date ever, drinking wine. And it was like the Venus flytrap closing. <laughs> it, it was flawless. So when September 11th happened, I remember thinking they fucking ruined the greatest date ever. Anti-love bastards. That's, that's one way so, to but, it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I started, I looked at the money I had as my NBC artist grant. Mm-hmm. So I moved back to, to New York just to, to get back into stand-up hardcore. I you know, never had stopped doing it. It just, the, doing the sitcom, right. you know, takes away a lot of your time. And I started taking trips to London. And I, I you know, so I, you know, people always ask, you know, and I got in the same way I got in with San Francisco coming from the East Coast was the same way I got in with London. I took three trips on my own where I invested in myself, you know, flew there, uh, both times slept on friends' couches and, uh, you know, a comedian that was already in there. And, and then, you know, Rich Hall was a good friend of mine and Greg Proops helped me get in with London. Uh, and, you know, Rich Hall let me stay at his place. And and then he taught me, you know, you don't go to the best clubs first. You go to the peripheral clubs and you do sets and you get your sea legs. You find out what references don't work. You find out what works in front of the English audience uh, or New York or San Francisco or wherever you want to get in with. And then once you got it, then you go to the best club. So... Um, Rich Hall and Greg Proops kind of coached me on that, and I got in with London. And so I'm living in New York, and I'm, you know, I took all these trips in to London, and I I got in. And uh, I started playing the comedy store regularly in London, and that's like probably the best club in Europe. And that led to gigs all over Europe and then the rest of the world. So So London for me was the key to everything, the international travel. And you didn't have to use that same technique in Amsterdam and other places? No, because I mean, what well, you know, being, uh, being the um, fact that I, I being vouched for it in London <clears throat> was enough. You get in with the comedy store in London. Uh, it's like playing the comedy cellar in New York. Mm-hmm. A lot of clubs in America will think, oh well, if he plays at the comedy cellar, he must be good. <laughs> so that's the attitude of a lot of clubs in it's Europe. A good enough the guy, the guy plays at the comedy store in London. So, you know, they He's only legit. they only have quality comedians right. there. So, that led to um I, me for Amsterdam, Tumler. I played at Tumler, which is the best club in Amsterdam. And then I fell in love with a Dutch girl and moved there. But I was, you know, that's the thing. I was partying so hard when I lived in New York. Oh my god, it's cocaine and uh ecstasy was really pure and wonderful then. And um, I was partying so hard when I lived in New York City, I actually moved to Amsterdam to bring it down a notch. <laughs> right, because if it's just marijuana and hash, it's... No, it's really it's true. A, no, because I, I uh, really... It's a, low, it's a more low-key kind of... Why this girl that I fell in love with, she was like from a small village in the north of Holland. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was really, you know, pure, nice clean, wholesome girl, and we lived in Amsterdam together. But now the life that you have now... I started to love life again. The, I've met your wife, and the life that you have now, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it doesn't seem quite as hectic, 
But you do travel a bit. I love traveling. What, what, it's part of being a comedian. Yeah, what do you... To play the game, you got to cover the ground. What do you... But there's some people who don't travel. They just pick a home <laughs> base and they're like, well, I can play anywhere within two hours of here. And That's good, too. You know, whatever... That might be better for having human life experiences, mm-hmm. which is crucial to being a comedian. For me, I always wanted my experiences to be adventurous. You know, a lot of my stories and jokes are about being in different places in the world. So what are the adventures you're seeking out now? Oh. Um, well, I mean, I've always wanted to write a book and not a flimsy comedian. Uh, my act has been transcribed kind of book. Right. Um, uh, I, I've already written it's over like a thousand pages. I'm. Right, you uh, said you were looking to trim the pork, the fat off the pork. Cutting chops. the pork, uh, fat off the pork chop. But uh, Henry Miller's one of my favorite writers, and the Rosie Crucifixion trilogy, uh, Sexus, Nexus, and Plexus. That's all one story. Okay, it was cut up into three books. I don't know what it's going to be, but um, you know, I read all about you know me and Hedberg in New York and those uh, that that wild period. Uh, you know, the sitcom experience, having the late night talk show in Amsterdam. And then when the late night talk show in Amsterdam ended, the same network let me be a presenter on a travel show. So I got to film a highlight on St. Petersburg, Russia. I remember you Peru, sending me videos. Uh, the Champagne region of France. Like um, a decade ago, I think. The I remember Dutch Caribbean. Yeah. I did so much cool stuff. And then, uh, you know, and then... I moved back to L.A. for a short period, but then I didn't live anywhere. I put everything into storage, and I traveled the world as a comedian for 10 years. So I'd go to Europe for three or four months at a time, go to Australia for a month, New Zealand for a month, Asia for a month, wherever. And then, you know, all over the States and Canada for five, six months. Like a comedy gypsy? Yeah, yeah, like a Rolling Stone. (laughs) Uh, And my wife had traveled with me for eight years. She's from Holland. Uh, she's a photographer, so she's she's looking for the best photos, and I'm looking for the best jokes. So we uh, we complement each other very well. So who does the booking, the travel booking? I do. Okay. Oh no, she helps with like <laughs> plane tickets and logistics. No, I mean because she's looking for. Is it more like <clears throat> oh I want to go here for pictures, and then you're like oh I bet I can do comedy there. Uh, I mean, Which it's mostly it? booked <laughs> around the gigs. Okay. Well, you know, what we would do when we didn't live anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, every year we would, depending where we were, we would go go live wherever we wanted to live. So mm-hmm. four years in a row, we went to Rome and rented an apartment uh, in Rome. Um, don't use Airbnb in Italy. Use sleepinitaly.com. And I highly recommend this very nice shopping street about three or four blocks from the Vatican. It begins with a V. I can't remember the name of the street. This is good to know, though. It's great it to know. Uh, what, what other helpful advice do you have for, and then, uh, for my and listeners we, out there? We did a month in Asia, mm-hmm. and then we went to Bali for two weeks and rented a place in Bali. So depending where we were in the world, when I would have breaks, we'd take... I mean, that's, you know, that's rock star living. Yeah. Uh, When I was still drinking in the States, we would go to New Orleans a lot, uh, go to San Francisco a lot. San Francisco is, I think, the Jerusalem of stand-up comedy. I think stand-up comedy started there with Mark Twain. I think Mark Twain invented the 
the art form of stand-up comedy. That could definitely so be that's why I guess. call it the Jerusalem of stand-up comedy. And uh, so I still go there several times a year. That's, you know, uh, my favorite kind of audiences are multinational, multi-ethnic, and, uh, you know, somewhat educated and well-informed, you know. What would you, you know, if, if a young, uh, young, nervous fan comes up that who could be that next Mitch Hedberg comes up to you after a show, <clears throat> what would you tell them now? Uh, as far as what? I mean, I remember being the young, nervous fan. Yeah. So, you know, like people send me, you know, emails. I always, you know, I always write them back. I used to write fan letters to Eddie Murphy at SNL. I was, you know, however young I was and, uh, and different comedians and none of them ever wrote me back. It would have meant the world to me if, so I always, I keep that in mind. I write people back. And then also I remember being a young comedian, you know, nervously approaching guys that I looked up to. Um, and you know, I, I remember being that guy. So, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm always happy to talk. Is there a standard helpful. thing you generally say though? No, no. Depends what they ask. Oh. Yeah. I mean, people like people, you mean like when people ask how to get into it right. or, or what's, well, I mean, it's, you know, what's the key thing to, what's the key piece of advice though? Is there a key piece of advice? Like, well, I mean, it's, you to know, to get to that Zen level of, I, I think a protection of innocence, you gotta, um, you gotta be, I mean, you gotta love people. I think, I think that's the real thing. Like, I, I don't know, but, I, but there's always exceptions to every rule. I've seen angry comedians who hate other human beings <laughs> who have done very well for themselves in this business. But, um, I, I think, I think you got to love humanity to a certain degree and, um, minimizing hate in your heart, uh, is a big part of it. I think breaking, facing your fear, um, Joseph Campbell, I'm a big reader, as you know. Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is one of my favorite books. And The the Hero's Journey. Um, he, do you know Joseph Campbell? Yeah. yeah. I mean, The Hero's Journey is talked about a lot in terms of, like, we're in the 40th anniversary of Star Wars. And, and a lot Star of talk Wars, about how it was totally. Based on the Hero's the, Journey. The, uh, George Lucas took The Hero's Journey of Joseph Campbell's right. philosophy and laid it into Star Wars. Right. So Joseph Campbell did the study of mythology uh, and all religions and theater up to contemporary cinema. In that book, it ends with Star Wars. And the hero's journey is the is same pattern. Uh, the hero, no one we ever considered a hero went straight up to the top. Everyone we ever considered a hero through every religion and storytelling uh, was on his way up to the top and then got knocked down. And then he had to rise up and overcome something. And, uh, you know, with Jesus, it was the crucifixion. And he had to come back from the dead. With, um, you know, Luke Skywalker, he had to, you know, his village gets burned. And then he's got to face his fear. He's, you know, the naive, uncomfortable kid. And yeah. then, you know, he rises up and becomes a, a, a Jedi fighter and everything. So um, uh, I, I think that you have to be the hero in your own journey as a comedian. And it is a journey. And everyone starts out the same. Everyone is terrified. You're trying to figure out, you know, your voice. You're trying to figure out jokes. The benefit of when you're starting is really exciting because you're looking for jokes everywhere. And then when you've been doing it for like 
10, 20 years. I think sometimes you forget that. But um, that's the one benefit of a young comedian is just, you're looking for jokes and everything. What's funny about this? And what's, you know. I mean, carrying a notebook everywhere. Guys. Every, I mean, I, yeah, I still carry a, a notebook and a pen with me everywhere. But uh, everyone starts out the same and you are terrified. And, you know, anything can happen. And there is a shit sandwich waiting for everyone, even when you get really good at it. You're going to eat a lot of shit sandwiches and you are going to be... You're going to feel humiliated because you're going to suck so bad at the beginning. But in those crushing defeats, you will go and, you, you know, you will fight your way out of it with the pen and writing shit to come back. And then be confident on stage. And uh, even if you do suck and your jokes fall flat, that you'll stand there with confidence and, you know, not look like you're ready to break down and weep. So, well... And uh, I can I can safely testify from watching you over the years that you have done that. Thanks, man. You have overcome all the obstacles, <laughs> and you are a hero. Thanks, friend. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Tom. Yeah, sure. really appreciate this. Oh man, I I'm I couldn't be happier. Oh. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.